0: Thank you to the halls for leading us in music for that last song. That was lovely. The only other song I know about teapots is I'm a little teapot short and stout. And so I've doubled my uh, teapot song knowledge this morning. That was really, I like that one better. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 21 this morning. That is the second to last chapter in the Bible. Beginning in verse 9 through the end of the passage. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, They will bring into it the glory and honor of nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, may we give you all praise and glory that you have made an eternal home for your people, Lord. May that be our great source of joy. Lord, I pray for our time today as we again study your word. I pray that you would bless us as we study your word, that we would be edified in your truth. Lord, I thank you for this church and for the fellowship we have and for the people that we have. Lord, I pray for our nation as there continues to be so much strife and division. Lord, and I just continue to pray for us to be light in that. Lord, I wanna continue to pray for Phyllis Kaufman as she recovers from her broken pelvis Lord, I just want to pray for your blessings on her and for a quick recovery. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time as we study this passage and that it can help us have even more love and affection for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're finishing up our summer series, The Forensics of Faith. We have spent the last several weeks talking about the works that God does in us. He gives us new life, he justifies, he sanctifies, he adopts us as his sons and daughters, he changes lives. And there are other things we could have talked about. As Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians, God blesses us with every spiritual blessing. We talked last week about how God finishes his work, finishes the work that he does in the life of a believer. And this morning, as we wind this series down, we talk about where that all leads, heaven in randy alcorn's wonderful book heaven which i would recommend that book i think it's well-reasoned i think it's a it's a great book heaven by randy alcorn but in that book he tells the story of an english minister who was asked by a colleague what he expected after death and the minister replied well if it comes to that i suppose i shall enter into eternal bliss but i really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects Our views of heaven are often far too lowly. In life, there are things that disappoint us. We see a preview for a movie that looks amazing, but it doesn't quite live up to the hype. A person raves about a restaurant, and you think it's just okay. We vote for a politician who we think will fix things, and they disappoint us. And there are lots of other examples we could look at. And perhaps... That's part of the reason why our views of heaven are often too low, because of earth, that we live in a fallen world, where there is sin and hurt, and where things are never quite right. And maybe because of that, and because of sin, because of what we hear and see in the world, because of the experiences we have, Maybe because of things in our own lives where we questioned where God was. We so often have a view of heaven like heaven could just be one more disappointment. Like heaven could somehow be overrated. Like we could find it underwhelming. But with all of the confusion about heaven, there should be no confusion about this. That heaven will be awesome. It is not going to disappoint. You will never be there and feel like it didn't live up to the hype. It will never be boring. Your worst day on heaven will be better than your greatest day of your life. And the reason why I know that is because we have a good God who made heaven. And he made it perfect. And it is my hope and prayer today that the hope of heaven can stir our love for God. For anyone who's a believer in the gospel, our ultimate home Is the new heaven and the new earth. And within those, God's holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is the subject of our passage this morning. And the main idea of this passage is that heaven is going to be perfectly awesome. And in this passage, we see throughout this section the appearance of heaven and the perfection of heaven. And so the first thing I'm going to look at in this passage is the look of heaven. John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, which we've spent so much time in, and Lord willing, which we'll be back in next Sunday, is given a vision. Now, he's not actually in the New Jerusalem. Verses 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So he's carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he's showed the holy city. In verse 11, John says that the city had the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. So this vision of the city coming down is a spectacular sight to behold. The glory of God. Think of glory almost like weight or mass. This heaviness of God's all inspiring glory. Something else to consider in the book of Revelation? In the previous chapter, it talks about the presence of God in heaven. And it says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. God is massively glorious. And so John begins to describe the city more specifically. In verses 12 to 14, the city is described as having a wall with 12 gates. And there are 12 gates inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. In verse 14, John mentions 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles. And what this is doing is it's showing completion in God's divine plan. There are three gates on each side of the city. This shows the openness through which the people of God are permitted to enter the city. And later on in this chapter, it talks of how these gates never close. And the reason why they never close is because the enemies of God have been vanquished and defeated. There is no danger to this city. As the vision continues, John sees the angel who was showing from the vision measuring the New Jerusalem. Verses 16 and 17. The city lies four square; its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The angel measuring the city alludes to Zechariah 2.2. The measuring of the city is showing the exactness of God's divine plan and completion. The city is 12,000 stadia. A stadia is about 600 to 640 feet. So 12,000 stadia is about 1,500 miles. So this city is massive. 1,500 miles from here, if we were to go east would take you anywhere in the eastern part of the United States. If we were to go 15 miles directly south, we'd be in Mexico. 1,500 miles to the west would take us to Las Vegas. 1,500 miles due north would take us to uh, the Hudson Bay up in Canada. In every direction. So it's a huge city. Uh, It's a very large place. And verse 16 says that its length and width and height are equal. So the city is shaped like a big cube, and then the angel measures the wall of the city. It's 144 cubits, which would be about 200 feet high. Now, 200 feet for a wall is pretty small in a city that's 1,500 miles high, but again, the purpose of the wall is not protection. It's just to show the boundaries of this city. That the new Jerusalem is within the new heaven and the new earth. And also, the wall serves to radiate and reflect back the glory of God. Verse 19 The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the tenth, topaz. I'm sorry, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Undoubtedly, a spectacular sight to behold. Standing at this great high wall and looking from side to side as far as you can see. You could drive for hours and not come to the end of it. A wall and the foundation of these spectacular stones. We have a lot of stereotypes about heaven. I think we tend to view heaven kind of cartoonishly, where we view people in white robes, on clouds, playing harps. But that's not the biblical vision of heaven at all. We aren't going to be standing on clouds. It's a new earth. And we will be there eternally. We will be resurrected bodily, which is talked about in chapter 20. So we aren't going to be spirits or ghosts. Now, just think for a moment about earth. There's a lot to it. Imagine if money were no object. If you had the time, you could travel everywhere you wanted to go in this world. Think about how much there is to explore. Who here likes earth? Who here has things that they like? Or maybe it's not even places that you've personally been to but things that you'd like to see. I think of some of the great artworks in Europe, some of the great architecture, amazing beaches around the world, spectacular rainforests. I think about when I lived in Minnesota for about two and a half years. It's a beautiful state. There's over 11,000 lakes in Minnesota. And before I met Carrie, on my days off, I would just drive around and take pictures of lakes. And I think about all the just spectacular sights that I saw in one state, in one country. And really, just mostly in one part of one state. How spectacular that was. But again, there's so many sights throughout the country and throughout the world that are just awe-inspiringly beautiful. Heaven isn't going to be standing on clouds. It's a new heaven and a new earth the image of heaven in cartoons and movies, again, that will all be playing harps. There are other instruments mentioned in Revelation in visions of heaven. I think the harp is stereotypical because it does have this very sort of ethereal sound. And yes, there will be music because music is a good thing. There will be food. We won't eat because we need to eat. It won't be that we need sustenance, but that a meal in and of itself is enjoyable. A feast is another one of the pictures of heaven that the Bible gives us. You might secretly fear heaven because you think, is it just going to be like a church service for all of eternity? (laughs) The sermons only last like 35 minutes and even those are hard to get through sometimes. How am I going to deal with that forever? Forever? Some of you shouldn't be laughing. (laughs) I think part of the answer to that question depends on what your view of worship is. For you, is worship something that you just sort of push through? Something that you put up with? Or do you have an entire life that is worshipful? Does your devotion to God influence your daily life and your daily routine? Does it influence how you raise your kids? How you love your spouse? Turning to God in prayer. When you enjoy a good meal or a beautiful sunset, is it to the glory of God? In short, do you have a lifestyle that revolves around a love for God? Or do you compartmentalize? I'll go to church for an hour for the church box, but for other things I do, those are really just for me. Yes, of course there is worship in heaven. It's the presence of God. But in heaven, it'll be a better and truer form of worship. Have you ever been trying to pray or study your Bible, and then you get interrupted by some, ah, I gotta get milk. And then you try to get back to praying, I need to check what the weather's gonna be like this weekend. And then you try to get back to praying, how is it already basically September? And just one distraction after another, you feel like you're just battling to keep halfway focused. But in heaven, you aren't dealing with the stresses of life, missed appointments, issues with finances, family stresses, health concerns. Heaven will be awesome because God is awesome. God is good and heaven is the place that he has made for his people. And there are undoubtedly things about heaven that we can't imagine. Again, the images that the Bible gives us are oftentimes things that are the great experiences of human life to show us just a glimpse of what heaven is like, but it is even greater than what we can imagine. How are you living right now? Are you someone who's basically moralist? You're a good person. Good things should happen to you because you're a good person. And yeah, God's okay. And if there's something good associated with following him, you'll have that. But in reality, you're really pretty lukewarm in your love for God? Or do you love God? Do you have a desire to know him? For that, ultimately, we can have a taste of that now. But to just know that it doesn't compare with the reality that it will be to actually be in the presence of a holy God. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis says, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except heaven. And the lost, they were always in hell. And both will speak truly. I'm not saying that to be cynical or snarky. But if you dread the idea of worshiping God in heaven, I think you might need to develop a greater love for worshiping him on earth. But again, no, heaven is not a church service for all of eternity. It's a new heaven and a new earth. Again, other images that the Bible uses. It's a feast. Who doesn't love a feast? The other day, I ate a whole pizza by myself. It was wonderful. (laughs) Laughter, music, as I've already said, not just from harps. But there's nothing wrong with the harp. The Bible compares heaven to a wedding. Now, in America, we go pretty over the top with weddings. But there are other cultures that go even further than we do. And in the first century, when this book was written... In this culture, a wedding celebration could last for a week. Wonderful times of joy and laughter and celebration. Heaven will be perfectly awesome. A wedding feast. It's not, come, join us at the jury selection pool of the Lord. No, heaven is a wonderful place. There will be wonderful company in heaven. You'll be in the presence of Jesus. The Lord who took the penalty of our sins. You'll be able to see him face to face. And you'll be you. We don't become robots in heaven. In the movie Men in Black, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones are federal agents who work with people who have seen aliens. And they question a person who's seen an alien. And if you've seen the movie, as soon as they get done questioning, they have this little looks like a pen, this device that they hold up, and it erases the person's memory of what's happened. That's not what happens in heaven. Your life and experiences you're still aware of. In the New Testament, there are visions, specifically Peter comes to mind, who sees Old Testament figures, such as Moses and Elijah. They are themselves. You don't become something else. You don't become an angel in heaven. I know that's a popular sentiment, oh, God needed another angel. Not a biblical idea. We don't become angels. We don't become divine. You are you in heaven. There'll be work in heaven. Work is something that in the Bible exists before the fall. Work is good. It won't be drudgery. It won't be I have to do that shift in heaven today. No, it'll be joyful, purposeful work. Heaven is not an eternal retirement community. For biblical reasons, I believe that there are animals in heaven. Isaiah 65, 25 points to a future time of restoration and the peace that will exist between people and animals and between animals among themselves. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. You'll hear the mighty lion roar, but there will be nothing to fear. Perhaps, the Bible doesn't definitively answer this, but perhaps even there will be pets in heaven. At least dogs. Cats, no. Again, animals also existed before the fall and were part of God's good and perfect creation. And this is because the restoration is not just humanity. God is restoring the physical world. It's a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. He's restoring people, and he's restoring animals. Not in a salvific sense. They don't have souls where they've personally fallen. But the book of Romans says that the whole creation is groaning. Sin affects everything. But there will be no sin in the new Jerusalem. It is a perfect place. And again, heaven should be a source of joy. And the point of the new earth is not that God has made a place that is worse than the world where we currently live. Because even for Christians, I think there's this constant temptation to think that this life is the pinnacle of our existence. And it isn't. We'll have greater perspective in heaven. We'll continue to learn and marvel at the eternal glory and goodness of God in heaven, in the presence of God. I remember at my former church in Minnesota, someone had passed away, and I was very moved by what my pastor and colleague said on Sunday. He said, I can promise you one thing. She's a better theologian right now than I'll ever be. Marveling at the face of God. Revelation 21 4 talks about heaven. And it says that it will be a place where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Again, it is a perfect place. For the things that have been struggles, for the things and the situations where we've suffered, in heaven, somehow, some way, all of that is made right. Perhaps heaven will be so glorious that in comparison it just won't matter as much. Or perhaps we'll have a different perspective and see how God really did work all things for good for those who love him. Again, I think we get glimpses of that now. Some of us have experienced things in, life, in our lives that we wouldn't wish upon anyone. But we know that without those, we wouldn't be who we are today. Back in our passage in verses 22 and 23, John says that he saw no temple in the city. That fact is immensely important, and we'll delve into that in just a moment. He does give the reason why in the second half of verse 22. He says the reason why he saw no temple in the city was because the city's temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Not only that, but the city has no need for a sun or a moon to shine, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So God's glory... Illuminates the new Jerusalem. Keep in mind, we're not talking about a crawl space that God is lighting. Maybe, again, 1,500 miles might not sound like so much. You could drive that in a couple of days. But when it's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles high, that's 3.3 billion cubic miles. And it is a perfect cube. The last part of the chapter talks about how the new Jerusalem doesn't need a temple. And the significance of that can be lost if we aren't thoughtful. I feel like I talk quite a bit about the temple theme in the Bible. And that theme comes to its biblical culmination in this passage. What is the temple? In its most basic form, the temple is the place where God meets his people. Just like how we oftentimes have a wrong view of God, especially if we picture it to be boring, I think we can have a low view of the temple, the presence of the Lord with his people. All throughout the Bible, including in the present day, there's this theme of temple, the garden, the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus, the church, the new Jerusalem. Maybe the connection doesn't exist or it doesn't seem obvious between those six places. In the garden, Adam and Eve live in the presence of God in a perfect place. But because of sin are cast out. But God remains faithful. He chose a man, Abraham, to be the father of many nations. And the patriarch of God's chosen people. From Abraham came Isaac, who fathered Jacob, who fathered twelve sons, who represent the twelve tribes of Israel. The Israelites were originally held in captivity in Egypt. And after God had miraculously freed them, and while the Israelites were wandering in the desert, God gave them instructions for the tabernacle. Again, as a reminder, that was the tent structure that the Israelites used when they traveled that was a symbol of God's presence with his people. Quoting from Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And again, it was a tent that they could take with them on their journey. But once the Israelites were in the promised land, the plan was for them to build a permanent temple, which would be be a place that represented God's presence with his people that happened during the reign of King Solomon. And we see the presence of the Lord filling the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In both places, where the presence of the Lord comes into the temple... People can't even stand there because his presence is so overwhelming. And in the Old Testament, the temple is hugely important. Building the temple, the people corrupting the temple, God allowing the Israelites to be conquered and the destruction of the temple, the Israelites being released by the Persians for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. That covers so much of the Old Testament, but it ultimately points forward. To an even greater temple. An even greater example of the presence of God with his people. Jesus. At the beginning of John 1, where it talks about Jesus. And it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you remember from last fall when we were in that chapter. That word for dwelled in John chapter 1 in the Greek literally means tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. The presence of God on earth. In John 2 Jesus says to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they mock Jesus because they think what he's saying is absurd, but they miss that he's referring to himself as the temple because he is. After Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out on believers. Acts chapter 2, it's dramatically described. The believers in the gospel are given the Holy Spirit and are the temple because of God's goodness. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The universal church in the world. Is God's ordained instrument until Christ returns. Of people who are saved by the gospel of Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, to do God's work in the world of advancing the gospel and serving and loving the Lord. Again, it's not that the church is important in itself, it's not that we're so great, but it's that God has given his spirit to his followers. And through the Spirit, we are made holy and equipped with gifts for building up the church. But that still points forward to an even greater temple, the New Jerusalem. It's a return to the original temple, the garden. The temple matters because the temple is God's presence with his people. It's the relationship which was tarnished in the garden, the presence of God which Jesus came to bring. And while we enjoy fellowship with God now, and while we should not discount that, It is merely a shadow of the true fellowship, of being back with God in the new temple that he will build, the new heaven and the new earth. And then here finally in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem. The temple, which has been a constant theme throughout the Bible, we see the return to the temple and the return to the presence of the Lord and the text says that there is no need for sun or moon in this temple because God is the light and Jesus is the lamp of the new temple. Notice the glorious and powerful moment it is when the presence of God fills the tabernacle, when, it, when He fills the temple. The rushing wind of God's Spirit in the new believers in Acts, the enormity of the glory of God in the Bible. And to be in his presence. perhaps you've stood by a waterfall, and you hear the water and you see it, and if it's a big waterfall, has the countless gallons rush down. you feel the immensity and power of that. The presence of God does not disappoint pondering his glory and holiness and goodness, being in fellowship with Him is something from which we will never tire because he is infinitely glorious and wonderful. God's presence is so holy and so full of life and vibrance that it is overwhelming. Heaven is a perfect place. The final verse of this chapter again drives home the character of heaven. Verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Sin cast us out of the garden. But with the tabernacle and the temple, within the rooms there was an inner sanctuary where only the high priest could go, and it was once a year, to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. One person, one time a year. And there were extensive purification rituals that the priest had to do before approaching God's most holy place because it was so sacred. And the dimensions of this holy inner sanctuary, or the holy of holies, were equal in its height and depth and width. No coincidence that in the New Jerusalem, that this most holy place is also a perfect cube. And to enter it requires perfect holiness. And that is a holiness we cannot earn. Admittance into this inner sanctuary is reserved for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We cannot write our own names. We cannot earn or buy our way in. But Jesus did. Through his death. Through his perfect life. Through his perfect holiness that he gives to us. Through believing in him. We cannot make ourselves holy. We cannot make ourselves pure. But we are enabled to enter because of the blood of the lamb. He accepts us freely. But we have to believe in him. Heaven isn't where a person should want to go. Because it's a better option than hell. It's where we should want to go. Because it is the abode of the Lord God Almighty. It is a place whose light is the Lord God and whose lamp is the Lamb. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that you have made a perfect place, that imperfect people do not deserve. We praise you for your Son who has come into the world, Lord through whom we can be forgiven. But may we believe in that and trust in that. And Lord, in this life, may we dedicate it to knowing you. May we live on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.